to Crofting Matters, topical discussions on crofting matters throughout the year. I'm Siobhan MacDonald for the Farm Advisory Service. In this episode of Crofting Matters, we discuss grassland management with Poppy Freiter, a sheep and grassland specialist from SAC. It's midsummer, the grass is growing, many crofters are considering how to make the best use of grass. In crofting areas, rushes and low pH are always an issue. Poppy, can you help us out here? How could crofters get the most from old permanent pasture with areas of rushes? Thanks, Siobhan. I think what we need to remember is what we're trying to do often with grassland management is to create an environment where the species we want thrive and the species we don't want are at a competitive disadvantage. And so when we're talking about, you mentioned pH, I also talk about drainage when it comes to rushes. We're actually trying to encourage the ryegrasses, the clovers, anything else that's been sown. And by doing that, we're putting the weed species and the rushes at a disadvantage. So first and foremost, looking at the health of the soil and trying to get that optimal. When it comes to rushes, course with the best will in the world sometimes they just get a hold and it, and it becomes a bit of a battle to try and get control of them and sometimes you might have to resort to topping and that can keep them at bay it's not necessarily the most best long-term solution and like I say getting the soil health right is more sustainable but topping them before flowering so early in the summer just to prevent that further seed production because we know those rush seeds do last in the soil for over 80 years. So trying to prevent that from happening in the first place is another good call. I guess it's good to know that often the grass between the rushes can be of good quality. So making the most of that grass between the the rushes by grazing it well, as we talk later on, and preventing it getting too high or grazing it too tight to make the most of it there. And again, like I say, by grazing it well, we're giving it that competitive advantage against the other species. And then I often say as a last resort, um, weed wiping with things like glyphosate and MCPA can be done just again, just to help get back on top of those rushes to help improve the grass management going forward. And in making the most of your grass, of course, this year, fertiliser prices are high. They're high every year, but they're especially high this year. How can we make the best of the grass growth? It's good to know that in Scotland generally, we're not utilising as much as we could utilise. There's an opportunity to utilise more of what we grow without actually having to grow more. And that is through using things like rotational grazing or manipulating the stocking density. So I talk about, I often go around with like a Coke can and I talk about trying to keep the grass at the sort of Coke can height. And if you just set stocking, if you don't want the work of rotational grazing, just try to keep it at the Coke can height. If it goes beyond that, then you want increased stocking pressure. And if it goes below that, you want to try and reduce stocking pressure or give the land a rest to kind of keep it at that height. But rotational grazing is the best way to utilise more without having to grow more, just by splitting fields up that bit more and moving animals around fields so that they utilise the grass more evenly across these smaller fields and then the grass is given a rest. I should say that other makes of drink are available. (laughs) 
you mentioned rotational grazing and there are lots of these terms about mob grazing, rotational grazing, set stocking. Could you explain what each means, please? It can get confusing because what means something to one farmer might mean a completely different thing to another. So this is sort of my interpretation and we can sign posts as well. There's a, there's a note available through the Farming for a Better Climate programme, which compares the three sort of three dominant methods of grazing as well. So mob grazing is taller grass. So it's rotational grazing, but you leave a much longer rest period. So often in one area will be rested for about three months often. So you get going into really tall grass. So it would be high stock and density for a short period of time, often about a day. And then that area is rested for a long period of time. So you're going into around like a standing hay crop. Set stocking is the common grazing method. So that's where animals are left for, I guess, over two weeks at a time is def defined as set stocking without being moved. And then rotational grazing as a standard, is, it aims to keep the grass short and leafy. So you're resting it, I mean, as a guide, as a starting point, the rest is around three weeks. So it's kept short and leafy. So there are the three main grazing methods. Another method that we talk about, and I actually see a lot of value, um, particularly in growth years like this, is deferred grazing. So that's when you say, right, this loads of grass. What I might do is I might save this grass rather than cut it and expend fuel and labour and cutting and removing that grass. I'm just going to leave that as a standing hay crop. Just let it rest. Let that field go to head. And I might graze that later on, perhaps post weaning with sheep or with cows. And it means that I can reduce potentially the housing period or it helps me through the winter. But also we've seen evidence that this form of grazing is beneficial to soil health and the, the water infiltration and the water storage in the soil as well. So deferred grazing is something that I think is a really good tool in years like this year. And with mob grazing and deferred grazing, if you're letting the crop go to seed, then you're losing quality, aren't you? So think of it akin to like hay, actually. So it's often around, so we talk quality in terms of energy, metabolizable energy, and we talk around sort of nine, nine and a half ME mark. And in terms of crude protein, it'll often be around the sort of 10, 11% crude protein mark. So it's not the sort of rocket fuel that we want to be giving to perhaps use in late pregnancy or growing cattle but it's good stuff just to, for belly fill and for those that don't need much. And that's why I say things like cows and uh, weaned ewes that we're not asking much from. You mentioned ME there. Can you explain what ME means? Basically, you know, in human nutrition, we talk calories. In animal nutrition, we talk ME, metabolizable energy. So, for instance, things like barley will be around the sort of over 13 ME mark. So it's high energy feed, whereas, and in grass can be high energy. So grass can be quoted at the sort of 12 ME in spring. It's often around the sort of 11 and a half ME mark early on in the year. And then if it's let to go to seed um, and drop in quality, then that ME value reduces. And we talk ME a lot more in fresh grass because protein is often not limiting. Protein in grazed grass is, is often in the 20s. And we need the energy to capture that protein. Remember, with ruminants, we're feeding the bugs first. And those bugs are converting that grass protein into protein they can use for, for growth and for milk production. 
and those bugs are, need energy to, to drive that uh, conversion. So that's ME, metabolizable energy. And is there a difference between a new young grass sward and an old sward in terms of ME? Yes, so often a newer, a younger grass will have a higher ME value. The reason mainly for that is if you think about all the genetic progress that's been made, so if we think about all the trial sites where they are selecting new cultivars for grasses, they're always selecting year on year, they're always selecting for the highest energy and the highest yielding grasses. So by reseeding and bringing in those newer grasses, we've got in Scotland, we've got the SRUC uh, recommended grass and clover list, those ones on the list will be the highest energy in the in the trials and the highest yielding in the trials. So we're always, when we're putting in a new sword, we're always bringing in those newer genetics that are high in energy. And then also the other thing, if you are reseeding, often people are reseeding with, um, with clover as well. And clover, again, is higher in energy than ryegrass, higher in energy than ryegrass as well. So younger grasses do tend to have higher energy. However, older grass lays permanent pasture can still maintain that good energy levels it's dictated on how well it's grazed and how well that soil is managed so again we're thinking about that rotational grazing system it's useful to understand that grazing livestock are very selective sheep more so than cattle but they will always select out the highest energy grasses in a field so in a set stock situation those high energy grasses are at a disadvantage so when we're um, rotationally grazing them, we're allowing grasses a rest and grazing more evenly across the field, we're actually giving an advantage to those high ME grasses. So grazing management still can improve the quality in terms of ME on a sward without needing to turn over grass sward and reseed in it. Okay, what then if grass is getting away from you, as it can do in the summer, you go from having nothing to having too much? Is topping a waste of time? Is that an admission of defeat? Is it a useful tool? Is it a waste of diesel? I think topping has its place. If you're considering it, we've got to acknowledge the price of diesel as well at the minute. You know, you've got to think what's cost effective, what's time effective for me. But if it has got away, topping will have the benefit in quality later on in the year. So for weaned lambs to go on to, or to, for growing cattle to go on to, and you want that energy, um, topping can be a benefit there. However, I would say it should be seen as more of a last resort. And my sort of preferred management would be, well, my preferred management is rotational grazing, going in it. Coat can height going out with coat can on its side. But for those that are set stocking and trying to keep it at that coat can height, I guess my preference would be to try and close off some of the fields so you're manipulating stocking pressure or bringing in more animals into a field to manipulate stocking pressure to keep it at that height to maintain that quality later on in the year. Yeah, lots of crofts have the advantage of having quite small fields anyway. So rotational grazing is maybe an easier thing to do just because you've got those small paddocks. If not, though, splitting up with electric fencing, that's quite a cheap and easy way to to split up paddocks. 
Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people think rotational grazing, you must have electric fencing. That's not the case. And for those with small fields already, it might be a case of, if possible, bringing in stock that might be across a number of these smaller fields into one field and moving them around those smaller fields. But yeah, electric fencing, simply splitting up fields more. I often say around the sort of two, two and a half hectare marks, around the sort of eight acre mark is a good size for starters anyway. Many folk will have smaller fields than that. So maybe it just makes it easier to rotate stock around. Over the summer, quite a lot of crofters, if they've got common grazing, will put especially ewes and singles out onto the common and maybe cows and calves as well out into the common. And so their in-by fields can be used for hay or silage production. With fertiliser prices this year, people are considering carefully what they're putting on. What should people be thinking about to try and make the most of fertiliser and still get a good crop of silage? Yeah, I mean, we've been quite fortunate that, I don't know what you've observed, Ron, but in terms of grass, growth generally has helped compensate perhaps a little bit for lower fertiliser applications. I don't know what you've seen. So far this year, it's been quite slow and it's been actually quite cold and wet. I guess it's a bit of a mixed bag then. I guess I'm sure myself as a bit of a southerner here um, around, around these parts, it seems to be grass has grown really well. I guess the first thing is considering what the silage or whatever the crop may be is for as as a starting point, because that will dictate when you cut that. The earlier you cut it, the better quality it's going to be, but the lower yielding it's going to be. So, I mean, we're we're in towards the end of June now, so really high quality silage, you'd want to have that cut sort of by early June if it's for using late pregnancy or if it's for growing or finishing stock you want the highest quality so you want to cut it early so less than 25 percent ear emergence so less than 25 percent of the grass is headed for those that are are cutting now or later the next sort of priority will be to ensure that there's the least amount of sugar and protein losses so that comes with wilt time so wilting it for no more than 24 hours will benefit this to reduce the losses and then it's a case of um, making sure it's not cut too low so you're not likely to have soil contamination affecting spoilage and affecting health issues potentially and then a case of making sure it's wrapped well so that there's less chance of air getting and then spoiling the silage that way so making sure it's well wrapped when it comes to silage you might have less opportunity to grow more at this time of the year but making sure that it's managed well so that you don't have that wastage might be the best way to call now. Quite a few folk are in environmental schemes, so their cutting date is restricted and they can't cut until either 1st of August or mid-August or even 1st of September. So some of those crops are quite late. And of course, the other problem in crofting areas is that you can't always get a contractor to cut. So with the schemes, that adds pressure on as well because everybody is cutting on the at the same time or you want to cut as soon as possible after the date. Mm-hmm. So that makes it tricky as well in terms of quality. 
And I think that can be fine if it's been fed to, to cows that will do all right on that sort of quality. But you've got to be mindful, and maybe this is something to weigh up when deciding whether to go into these schemes, that it will mean, for instance, ewes in late pregnancy, if the silage is poorer quality, they need more feed. And so you've got to might be mindful that you might have that greater expense at that end. And in terms of fertiliser then, if you're going to be able to cut in, say, June or July, what fertiliser should you be applying? And if you're cutting later in the year, then what should you be applying in terms of fertiliser? So the yield of the crop determines how much of the phosphate and potassium that will be removed so later in the year you'll have a higher yield so you'll be taking away more p and k from the soil so for an earlier cut you really have to kind of have an estimate of what you're taking away to understand what sort of p and k needs to be returned to the soil to replace that so an earlier cut you might need lower p and k returns than a later cut is there a benefit to sampling your soil before you apply fertiliser? Yes, is the short answer. So we need to have an understanding of what fertiliser requirements are. And in some cases, you might be pleased to find you don't need much and, and you'll save money. Or in other cases, you might find you need more than you expected. But it's a worthwhile investment because it's important to get the pH, P's and K's and right in the soil to make sure that if you are applying nitrogen fertiliser, that it's utilised well. So we know at lower pHs, the, the nitrogen applied isn't utilised very well and some of it is therefore wasted. So yes, uh, making sure you sample the soils beforehand can help you be more precise with your nutrient applications. Many crofts will have quite a low pH. Not all, there are exceptions, such as you know in macker soils. But the majority will be a low pH. What's the lowest pH that you could expect to see good grass grown or a response to fertiliser? It depends on what you want from that pasture. But if you want to be encouraging clover, I would say the sort of 6, 6.2 mark would be the one to go for. And in that way, you are benefiting from the, the clover nitrogen fixation. I should say I'll exclude PT soils in this instance if you think about it white clover the rooting system is less deep and less intricate than than ryegrass so it's actually more sensitive to lower ph and lower p and k than grasses so if you want to be encouraging clover i actually say 6.2 and we talk about the sort of economic sort of optimum ph as well and again i would say that possibly has, needs to be revised with in light of higher fertilizer prices because you know, with fertiliser prices being triple what they used to be just a year ago, if we're getting them on that optimal pH, that 6 to 6.2 mark, then any nitrogen applied is used more efficiently. So it's going to be more cost effective. I think as a standard, as sort of 5.8 would be the lowest that I would hope to see. So what pH should we be aiming for to make the most out of fertiliser on a permanent grassland sward? Just aware that many of the listeners might be on sort of PTR or high organic matter soils. So the target might be a more realistic sort of 5.8 pH to see a benefit. Just by moving up the pH through applications of limes, any nitrogen applied 
will be used that bit more efficiently. At lower pH, the nitrogen uptake by the plant is reduced, so nitrogen applications are not used as effectively as they could be. However, as a sort of standard or more mineral soils, or sort of a pH of 6 and above would be better, again, just to, to utilise that nitrogen much more efficiently and just for better encouragement of the ryegrass and clover species. If somebody was doing a full reseed or an oversow, should they be aiming for a higher pH? What pH would be the absolute optimum? I would say about 6.2. We talk about economic optimum, and that's based on the price of, of fertiliser comes into that, actually, because it's obviously a cost to put nitrogen on, but it's the economic benefit of that. If you consider the species that you're sowing, again, we're trying to give them the best chance possible against any weed species that might be given opportunity with the disturbance of the soil. And so to do that, we want the soils to be in best condition for these species. White clover's got less intricate rooting than, than ryegrass, so it's actually more sensitive to lower pH and lower P and K than ryegrass is. So if you want to encourage clover in the sward, you want a pH of around 6.2. What are the differences between doing an oversow or a full plough and reseed and what should we be thinking about? You should be looking at the sword and seeing how healthy it looks to start with. Is there a, a decent amount of the grasses that you want, often ryegrass and clover? And if there really isn't much at all, then that's when you're looking at doing a full reseed. Whereas if there's, if you just want to, say, increase the clover content and it looks like the seed will get good soil contact that's important when you're overseeding the seed soil contact then overseeding might be a much more cost effective and also better for the environment really and better for your soil health is minimizing the disturbance of this soil so if you've got decent number of species in there you just want to add to it then over sowing might be a better option crofters can get access to the crofting agricultural grant scheme to help with the cost of reseeding at a 60% grant or if they're lucky enough to be under 41 it's an 80% grant that's a big help and it means that people can really consider how much fertilizer and lime to put on with the cags grant you have to do the full works within a year if you're applying lime to increase the pH, how long does lime take to work? It depends on the sort of the soil type, doesn't it, and things. Often you want to apply lime six months prior to a reseed. So you want to give it six months in advance of reseeding. So definitely need to plan ahead. And if you're applying lime, I believe that you're not supposed to add lime and phosphate fertilisers at the same time. How long a gap do you need to leave between applying one and the other? So if applying lime, the risk is that it'll form calcium phosphate. So if, if it's applied at the same time as phosphate, which locks it up. So again, sort of six months between the application of lime and phosphate is the good time period to prevent or reduce the risk of this occurring. So apply the lime first. And then at the time of reseed, apply the fertiliser that you need. Yeah. Okay. Some folk will have livestock in wintered and they'll have access to farmyard manure. 
How useful a product is that in terms of fertiliser? Farmard manure is highly useful. It'll have a decent P and K content, which will help. I mean, if you think about it a lot of the time, it's just the silage or hay that's gone through the animals. So it'll help replace those loss, those removals of P and K that you've taken from your silage and hay fields. I think one thing to note is if it's a high amount of straw in the farmyard manure, that's high carbon and uh, that can lock up nitrogen as well in the soil. So that's where it would benefit from being composted a bit just to break down that carbon before it's applied to the soil. There's a really good tool developed by ADAS a number of years ago called MANA MPK. Just with a little bit of uh, information in terms of the the farmyard manure and how you're applying it, it will let you know what the value of that is in terms of nitrogen, phosphate and potash and even put pounds and pence on it. So MANA MPK is quite good to understand that value that bit further. And that's on the ADAS website? Yes, just search for Manor MPK, it should show up. As well as soil sampling, is there anything else that we should be doing to ensure good grass growth? So soil sampling gives us the chemistry, which is one aspect of soil health, but also you've got to think about the biology and the structure. So we've got to think of three aspects really all together. And one of the best things I think crofters can do is actually just digging a soil pit, so taking the spade out, there perhaps when it's not quite as as dry at the moment when there's a bit of moisture in the ground to give you that bit of chance to get the spade in and looking at how well the soil breaks down how easily it breaks down are there any sort of horizontal cracks because that's a sign of compaction issues does it smell as a sort of a sulfur smell to it that's a sign of of water logging coloration of the soil sometimes you get the orange mottles which is another sign that it's prone to waterlogging and there might be compaction issues further down and then also number of worms that you see so often we like to see at least seven or eight worms in a spades with pit that's been dug and these are all just indications of, of the biology and the structure there and then if the structure is deemed to be poor there is actually a scoring system a visual evaluation of soil structure it's scored from one to five so VES for short, again, that's available through SRUC, SRUC VES. And if the structure's deemed a score four or five, so really heavy compaction, high signs of compaction, then that's when we might uh, look at doing some sort of remediation. So using a sword uh, lifter, if it's, it's deeper compaction, or a slit aerator, if it's sort of quite shallow sort of compaction in the top 10 centimetres. And this all helps improve the soil structure. And you find the three aspects are very interrelated. So by improving the soil structure, the biology might improve. And and also improving the soil chemistry, again, it it feeds into better biology, which again improves the soil structure. The worms are aerating the soil too. So the three aspects of soil health all, all interrelate there. Thanks very much, Poppy. That was really useful. Could you give me your top three tips? So my most optimistic message for Scottish crofters is that there's opportunity to utilise more grass without having to grow more. And just by moving animals around will help you make the most of that opportunity. Moving animals around or splitting fields in half 
My second tip is getting an eye and a gauge on soil health. Like I say, we're always trying to encourage the species we want by creating that soil environment. And that means they have that competitive advantage against the species we don't want. So looking at soil tests, looking at soil structure, just to gauge the soil health and give us ideas for how we might improve it. And then finally, I would say weed control using chemicals is the last resort, but it's best targeted using a weed wiper to avoid water contamination. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Crofting Matters. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, follow and subscribe to our show. Leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes below. If you enjoyed listening to Crofting Matters, you may enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as Stock Talk, a monthly panel show featuring timely advice and expertise on managing your livestock. Come back next month for more Crofting Matters. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.